I think it'd be fair to say this is a obviously a very difficult time and I'm not I've been in the public record saying from the beginning that I thought COVID was serious and it required a serious government response. But in my opinion, we missed the opportunity, <laughs> right, to have that serious government response that was driven by data, careful decision making, alternatives being analyzed, costs and benefits being considered, and being incremental and responsive rather than one size fits all draconian emergency style decision making, at least in California, we missed that opportunity. And I think the costs, again, historians will have to weigh in on this, but I'm pretty confident the costs of our policy choices will outweigh the benefits. Hey, everyone, welcome back to Connection. I'm so excited to finally have this episode ready to go because the timing couldn't be more perfect. As much as I know most of us would like to forget about and move on from the devastating events of the COVID years, we should not forget the terrible abuses that were perpetuated by our government some worse than others. The lies, the coercions, and the downright dictatorship that overcame this country are inexcusable. In light of recent information, namely that masks and lockdowns accomplished nothing, how poorly most politicians and the so-called experts handled COVID policy should not and cannot be forgotten. There are whispers of a return to 2020 protocols as the new COVID variant seems to be following an old script of fear-mongering and booster-pushing. Someone who saw clearly through the narrative is Brian Gable. And while Brian has a long and varied career as a lawyer, professor, entrepreneur, a senior policy advisor in the Department of Homeland Security, and an elected official, he's made a name for himself as an applied analytics expert, which makes him exceptionally skilled at understanding where data is flawed and how it's being manipulated. According to Brian, no data or models were more flawed than those used during COVID. Brian and I discuss all the misuse of data and the terrible consequences that stem from business and school closures and the suspension of everyday life in general, particularly in California. We talk about accountability and performance measurements for the so-called experts and how true experts were ignored and silenced. Of course, we discuss the need for facts over fear when it comes to how we allow government to handle catastrophic events, whether man-made or natural, in the future. I could say so much more about our conversation, but it's better just to listen to it. So without further delay, here's Brian. When you have so much data about the biggest misuse of data in public policy in the last however many decades, you can't ignore it. I mean, it literally, as you said, it's just the thing that it allowed me to illustrate so many of the key points um, in the syllabus um, with so much available data. It was just, it's just you can't ignore it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Why would someone begrudge, even if you don't agree? Well, uh, although I don't know how you disagree with data, but okay. By the way, can, can we can we resolve an ongoing conflict for me? Sure. Is it data or data? I say data. Okay. Most of the time, I believe. Because I think you just said data. I say data. Maybe. All right. Well, <laughs> so is then it I vacillate. Yeah. Okay, so there is no agreed upon. No, there isn't. That's but you okay. are an expert, but you are an expert in it. <laughs> Doesn't matter what you call it, you're an expert in it, in my book. Well, as I pointed out, no, even the experts don't agree on the terms or what the terms mean. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's one of the one of the challenges in the data science, data analysis space is you have to essentially define your terms yourself. 
as part of a team, as part of a project in the government, however you choose to set, whatever your audience is, but you gotta make sure that you're communicating clearly because people use different terms. The same term to mean very different things, mm-hmm. right? A model, for example, can mean about four or five different things. Uh, so it's just precision matters, defining your key terms matters, um, so. Do you think that was part of the confusion around COVID is that people didn't understand what terms mean or they weren't being outlined clearly? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion around COVID and I don't, we can get into any number of issues, but I think that one, just in the very beginning, there's so much emphasis on testing, right? And what folks didn't really understand, I don't believe, or at least the media weren't fully reporting, was who was actually being tested? Why were they being tested? <laughs> what does that mean in terms of the reliability of the data in terms of providing a snapshot of what's really going on statewide, nationwide, uh, random versus non-random sampling, people who have symptoms getting to the front of the line, batch reporting of results. So you could have you know, seven cases reported one day and 700 the next. And the media says, you know, we had 100x increase in cases, mm. but no, those tests mm. were from eight days ago, right? And so mm. I, I think a lot of the confusion, and some of this is normal, just in a crisis, fog of war type stuff, but some of the confusion was just setting some basic parameters around what was actually going on. And then I'm not sure the media even fully understood how all this was playing out. And so just a lot of confusion around just what the testing data even meant in the very beginning. And unfortunately that sort of persisted all the way through uh, the, the, the duration of the emergency. Uh, we retained quite a bit of emphasis on testing despite the fact that we never did random testing in any part of the country, I don't believe, but certainly not in California. So it wasn't a reliable measure of the trajectory of the virus. And yet we had hospitalization data, which was very reliable, which we discounted, de-emphasized and and moved away from um, immediately after the first lockdown, Um, despite hospitalizations being the sole, and mean, you know, the sole justification really hospital capacity for the lockdown order, so. So they were using not the best data, meaning if you really wanted to understand the trend of the virus, if you want to understand um, the numbers that we should have been using to make policy, we should have looked at hospitalization rather than testing because testing was so unreliable and and variable. Yeah, I mean, the thing, the thing you have to understand about testing in the beginning was it was a dramatic undercount of what was actually going on with the virus in, in California and everywhere, quite frankly. And there were serology studies done, I think roughly in May, June, and July of 2020 that confirmed this, that there were a lot of cases obviously not being detected by, by testing. And really that cuts both ways in terms of how you view the pandemic. If, you're, if you were remain an alarmist, yeah, there was a lot more COVID out there than than the cases reflected, right, in the public reporting of the cases. On the other hand, the reason it was underreported is because those are mostly, if not exclusively, asymptomatic cases, one. And two, when you recognize only confirmed cases 
it creates a very small uh, fat, uh, fatality, sorry, creates a smaller number of cases in which to measure fatalities, right? So your case right. fatality rate becomes very high. Right, skewed. Where, right, skewed, as opposed to if you looked at how many people really had COVID at any given point in time, the fatality rate would be much, much lower. And, and it, already, it already was pretty low. I mean, it was, even with those, it was pretty low. Yeah, it never got to the level that I think some of the early predictions called for, right? 3% plus type fatality rate. Um, and, but the, the, the use of the case fatality rate metric, which was used for maybe the entire pandemic, but certainly in the early days, grossly distorted um, the, the fatality rate from, from, from COVID and ignored, right, the fact that a lot of folks were being infected but not having any symptoms. So, yeah, the data, the data was troubling from the very beginning. And hospitalizations were really the best, in my opinion, the best data that we had to understand what was going on with the virus. Because you could identify those folks in the hospital suffering from COVID symptoms who had tested positive. So pretty, pretty certain they had COVID and they right. had serious COVID. And we knew, we know from all the early reporting from all the various public health organizations, epidemiologists, et cetera, that when you look at any kind of viral pandemic, epidemic, et cetera, you figure a certain percentage of those infected are gonna develop serious illness. And in the early days of COVID, it was assumed to be around 20%. It's actually closer to 10 to 12%, I think, but it doesn't matter. Once you know that, once you assign that percentage, you can then figure out what's going on with the overall trajectory prevalence of the virus based on the number of serious cases that are confirmed. And the other thing about hospitalization data that was useful but ignored was it wasn't contemporaneous in the sense that, you know, you get your test result in a day and you can figure out or two days or three days and figure out what was going on with the virus the day you took your COVID test. But hospitalization data really only lagged about nine days. So from the date of infection to the date of hospitalization, on average, about nine days. So it wasn't an immediate snapshot of what was going on with the virus, but it wasn't that far removed from what was happening and very accurate in terms of what was really happening. Fatality data, the other source of data on the trajectory of the virus, we can debate whether it was reliable based on coroner, coroner findings and the criteria used for assigning COVID as the cause of death. Mm -hmm. But assuming it was reliable, um, it lagged 25 to 35 days, mm. right? So not a very good metric for trying to manage public policy during the pandemic because the snapshot it gave you could have been very accurate, but it told you what was happening with the virus five weeks ago. So if you're a public policy official trying to make decisions about whether to increase public health restrictions, reduce them, reopen, close, mask, not mask, indoor, outdoor, you can't really wait around for fatality data. That's not gonna be useful. You're, you're way behind, right? By the time you decide to close something, the virus may have completely peaked and now be in a rapid decline or you've reopened and all of a sudden the virus is 
dramatically expanding again. So in my opinion, hospital data was in all the way through, still today, the best metric for assessing what's going on with the virus. And no one really was using that, right? Like what, what was the main metric? I mean, at least let's, let's stick to California because, you know, it's, yep. it's a fan favorite of yourself and, and myself yep. <laughs> to just, you know, rather than just rag on Newsom, which is so easy to do and fun, but I, I would like to, you know, have some supporting evidence here. Yeah. So it's interesting. The, the lockdown in March of 2020, the stay at home order was really predicated on a sensible public policy objective, right? Which was to avoid the collapse of the hospital system because we could not absorb tens to tens of thousands of COVID, serious COVID cases in the hospitals in California. They would have been overwhelmed. We would have not had health care for anybody else. Puts our health providers at great risk. Sensible reason for exploring uh, a stay-at-home order and as a public policy matter, one that is worth seriously exploring, right? In terms of what actions you take in order to preserve healthcare capacity. The problem was in the very beginning, there were a couple of problems, but one, the modeling that was done to estimate the trajectory of the virus and its impact on our hospital system in California was flawed. It was terrible. Secondly, we weren't even accurately counting hospitalizations the day the stay-at-home order was issued. We didn't have hospitalization data for about 10 days after the stay-at-home order was issued. We finally started collecting it statewide and reporting it. And when it became clear in early April, at least clear to me, and a few others very early April that the lockdown had succeeded in preventing the healthcare system from being overrun. Uh, not clear it was actually in danger of being overrun, by the way, but it was clear that it wasn't going to be overrun by early April. That's when things started to shift. And we called this, I wrote some pieces on this um, and other lawyers who were involved in various facets of COVID litigation picked up on this too. Uh, they called it the moving goalpost problem, mm -hmm. right? So we went from preserve healthcare capacity, which we succeeded in doing to a set of reopening criteria developed in May of 2020 that were focused almost entirely on case counts. Despite all the problems with case counting that I just described a few minutes ago. And so we shifted our justification uh, for public health measures, and then we changed or relied on data that were the least reliable for deciding whether to reopen and how far or to close and how far, right? So uh, the measuring stick using case counts was, was highly problematic, and we never really returned. Hospitalizations were always in the background as a, another factor that could be considered, but they were never the leading factor in deciding uh, public health policy after the initial stay-at-home order. And you know, I think that was a mistake, quite frankly. So the question is, why? Why were people like you, I mean, I counted, you wrote between March 25th and June 30th 
of 2020, you wrote about 20 articles yep. about the data, um, you know, why it's being misused, misrepresented, why there's no need for panic, why this the policy was um, nonsensical, like it didn't make sense. Um, and you you told me personally how you tried to reach out to the LA Times, to Governor Newsom himself, his team, your representatives, and just pretty much got the Heisman. Yeah, I did. Uh, I wasn't alone, uh, as you and I have discussed. Um, mm -hmm. There were and are uh, faculty members at Stanford here in California, esteemed professors at Stanford who had similar views that were expressing them publicly uh, to no avail at, at the same time. And uh, I want to give them their credit for also right standing up and saying, no, this is what the data say. Now, Let's who talk would this be, pardon the interruption, but Ioannidis, Bhattacharya? Yeah, and Levitt. And Levitt. Uh, yep. Um, all Stanford, right? Yep. And all ignored and vilified in certain circles, for sure. Uh, and all very much well accredited. I mean, these were not. Levitt's a Nobel. Levitt's a Nobel Prize winner. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I hold Nobel Prize winners in pretty high regard for their intellectual acumen. So, uh, yeah. So yes, I was writing aggressively at this time, uh, and trying to communicate with folks who were in the media reporting regularly on these issues, as well as every public official in, in, my, in my list of public officials for my district all the way up to the state level. And yes, everything I said for all intents and purposes fell on deaf ears. Why? I think there are a lot of potential explanations. It's probably gonna take a good historian five, 10 years from now to really sift through it all. Um, but I think a few things explain some of the early challenges. The duration of the public health restrictions in California is harder to explain, mm -hmm. uh, in my opinion. But in the beginning, uh, I'll say that on the merits, when you're in a crisis, you're getting bombarded with bad news and you may be presiding over a bureaucracy, a bureaucracy that is not well prepared for the challenges you're facing. It can be very hard as a senior official to make good decisions, one. And two, it can be even harder to put your hand up and say, I don't have the data I need to make a good decision. So I'm gonna proceed cautiously as opposed to aggressively. Right, and the steady dumb drumbeat in the media from February to March of 2020 was panic. Mm -hmm. It was panic. It was look at Italy. That's what's ha gonna happen across the United States if we don't do something. We've gotta do something super aggressive right away. And the state of California did not do that right away. It actually had a sort of mix of decentralized and statewide public health restrictions gradually being implemented from February into March. Counties had a role, 
the state had a role. Folks were experimenting with different public health measures to try to slow the trajectory of the virus. But the Imperial College model came out in middle of March 2020. Uh, it freaked out the British government, for lack of a better term. And within 48 hours, it had pretty much done the same to almost every other Western government, save perhaps Sweden, uh, in terms of their thinking about what was happening and what was going to happen with the virus. And so the steady drumbeat was given that sort of final impetus to turn into pretty much near full panic and aggressive media calls for action. Mm -hmm. So back to the beginning, can I understand we, that- Can we just pause for a second? What was yeah. wrong with the Imperial College model? <laughs> Uh, there was a lot. Wrong. I know, but <laughs> yeah, no, there was a lot wrong with the Imperial College model. Um, I'll just try to sum it up in a couple of different ways. Um, number of assumptions that were made that I don't think corresponded to the actual data that were were available at the time. You could argue the methodology was not sound. That's a longer discussion. And there were multiple potential scenarios. I think there were three scenarios, if memory serves, discussed in the model, but the worst case scenario was the one that everyone seized on and the, the, the modeling itself, the report out sort of focused on. And the numbers that came out of that model for the United States were terrible. Um, I think it was, if memory serves, 2.2 million fatalities in less than six months, something along those lines. It was a very high number, but not, in my opinion, grounded in the real observational data or a good set of assumptions about how governments and public members of the public would respond to increasing information about, about the virus. So that model though, from an influential institution in the UK, essentially became the, for the time being the de facto, uh, what's the right way to say it? Um, well, it became the- Benchmark, you know, The benchmark? The, yeah, the really the- Standard? Yeah, the, I mean, for, for the time being, it was gospel. Yeah. Right, about what yeah. was gonna happen. And so you have, a steady drumbeat of fear, increasing case counts, experimentation with the different public health measures. And then this model comes out and essentially it drives many, many public officials to go to, to abandon sort of incrementalism and go full bore into a stay-at-home order lockdown approach to trying to arrest the trajectory of the virus. Wasn't the guy who, who, who had led this study also questionable? His prior results or his prior studies and versus that what actually happened and results like his prior modeling, stuff like that? 
Yeah, some of the models that the Imperial College had done in the past, I think particularly around mad cow disease had not proven to be uh, accurate, uh, to be polite about, about the models. And yet this model was again viewed as essentially gospel. That's a whole problem with modeling, by the way. And I know you and I have discussed that before, which is the media rarely goes back to say, three weeks, six weeks, nine months, whatever, after a prediction based on a model is made to look at the accuracy of that prediction and assess the performance of that model. That, by the way, was a problem all the way through the pandemic. Uh, modeling exercises kept making predictions that were totally wrong, and yet we kept going back to the models. Uh, anyway, I was trying to be fairly charitable to our governor and the governor of New York and others who in the early days incomplete information, media firestorm, Imperial College model, crisis mode, bureaucracy that may be underfunded and ill-prepared for dealing with this. So it's in a sense understandable how they move from incrementalism to decisive action, if you will. Uh, but <laughs> there really was no plan for what happened next. And so I don't believe personally that the lockdown was justified in March of 2020. I don't think the data supported it. There was no analysis of alternatives. There was no cost benefit analysis done around the lockdown. Cost benefit, what's that? Yeah, <laughs> but to be charitable, it's not completely, right. uh, it's not completely irrational to move in that direction in March of 2020. In March, right, in yes. the beginning. In March of 2020. But it became very clear, as I said earlier, that by early April it had worked for the stated purpose of preventing the hospital system from being overrun. In fact, it wasn't even gonna be close. And there was no plan for what came next. Mm -hmm. So we went into it with very little thinking crisis mode, fog of war, and no ability to figure out what came next. Um, as you mentioned, I wrote a lot of articles in those early days and probably by early April, I'd probably written four or five explaining that not only was the hospital system fine, but case counts, hospitalizations, everything was coming down and we needed to get on with the task of reopening and figuring out how to live with this virus for the long haul because lockdowns were not sustainable and the costs were gonna be enormous over three to 10 years out. And that was also met with deafening silence. And so, you know, this dragged on for weeks. Well, and that and was we, the initial, that was the initial rationale, right? Two weeks to flatten the curve, to make sure the hospitals aren't overrun. I just keep summarizing this because I feel like it's such an important point that get that gets missed is that was the rationale, yep. right? It's not zero COVID policy. Nope. It's not um, save every life. It's not no one can get COVID. It's the hospitals. We need to care for the people in the hospital. You know, they can't be overrun. We can't have this two weeks to flatten the curve for that. And then, like you said, it became the moving goalpost. Well, we're not sure. Or they just flat out said, well, it looks this way now, but we're not sure. And yeah. So I don't agree with the lockdown decision. As you know, uh, I wrote several letters, including two to the governor, expressing my concerns, wrote about it publicly quite a bit. 
but the the bigger problem became in a way as i said after early april it was obvious that we'd achieved our goal and and there was simply no plan and no mechanism for what came next mm-hmm. and that led to as many problems in my opinion as the initial stay-at-home order right because things ground on businesses had no predictability schools remained closed we had this idea that we would do this depending on case counts or whatever open close like we were some super efficient rapid decision making you know entity at the state level that could weigh these things quickly and and make make good decisions and you know by the end by the end i mean by the time we finally got around to doing something to reopen the economy um, it became fairly clear to me that uh, folks did not want to relinquish the authority that they had been given to manage the pandemic um, and so, so down, in your mind it came down to power yeah I mean, we had extraordinary power vested in the governor, extraordinary power with a legislature that was not interested in exercising any oversight on the use of that authority, courts that were reluctant at best to exercise any oversight on that authority, and then unelected public health directors exercising enormous authority uh, as well at the at the county level. And, you know, it's, people like their day in the sun. Um, And once you have authority, you're reluctant to give it up. I think that's just a law of human nature. It's certainly a law of political science. And um, I think the fact that we didn't finally get rid of our COVID emergency until just recently (laughs) is pretty strong evidence of that, right? Um, There hasn't been an emergency since the big wave of the winter of 2020, if you even want to call that an emergency. But that was actually the big wave. That was when the hospital system actually had some challenges. Uh, So, you know, why we've had it for another two years plus? Um, Well, I've given you my thoughts. (laughs) Well, and this was my question in the the paper that I, it almost warrants a whole other paper. is what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Was it the media that, and the politicians in certain areas, the unelected bureaucrats, Fauci, NIH or um, CDC, that scared people so much that they demanded of their local officials, do something, you have to do something. Or was it just vice versa that, they created the the politicians with their, like you said, their love of power and authority and unwillingness to give it up said, created the fear. And then people are like, oh, they know better, you know? Or is it, I think maybe it's a, talking out loud, I think maybe it's a symbiotic relationship, right? One think, feeds the other and. Eventually, I think they were certainly mutually reinforcing. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the beginning, at the federal level, I would say that the response, although not well choreographed or orchestrated, was not alarmist in the beginning. 
um, a little different perhaps at the state levels, but at the federal level in the very beginning, it was not alarmist. Now I do think it changed, but the very- Well, and people, people, sorry, but people now look back at that and say, you know, they criticize Trump for downplaying it. They criticize yep. people for downplaying it. And, and, and I don't see it as downplaying. I see them as doing their job, which is trying not to create this big panic. Yeah, and it, it gets back to what do you do when you have imperfect information? Mm-hmm. And there are costs and benefits associated with both incrementalism and decisive action. And what's your political philosophy in the face of uncertainty? Do you act or do you pause and gather information and continue to monitor and then act only when you finally have the information you need to make a good decision? Those are different philosophies. And I think that the media primarily forced governments to act in the absence of good information by creating a climate of fear. And you could just go back and look at the front page of every newspaper from January, late January to April of 2020. It's all COVID, it's all case counts, it's all fatalities, it's all photos of Northern Italy all the the worst possible scenarios right getting media attention my favorite was the ticker tape like uh sports scores across the bottom of deaths or or case i'm like what it's oh yeah no i mean it's it's, it's, a game that just that just showed me like you're treating this like it's a game well it sold newspapers it generated online subscriptions it got people to watch every every news channel on cable, right? Uh, it did. And so I don't think we can ignore that. And the media understands that. Um, so it would be incorrect to blame the media solely, but they definitely substantially contributed to the climate that produced aggressive action in March of 2020, not only in California, but in New York and other places. Um, And I also think about if somebody else had been president at that time, I'm curious as to what that may have looked like in the beginning. Yeah. I did not. Like everyone said, this became political, like a, a public health, I don't even want to say emergency, but a public health matter became political. From the very beginning. Yeah. Every president has had his own leadership style, decision-making style, ways of interacting with the media. Um, And I do think that if we'd had, I'm not talking about party affiliation, I'm talking about philosophical disposition, communication strategy, general life outlook. You know, think about the first President Bush. Genteel, conservative with a small C, liked to get a lot of data, didn't rush into making decisions, successfully navigated the fall of the Berlin Wall without antagonizing the Soviet Union while it was down, handled Iraq, 
got no credit for these things basically, of course, and lost the election. The, but his approach, I'm guessing, to COVID, had he been president in the COVID time, would have been very different. And quite frankly, probably fairly reassuring to the country in terms of we're going to look at this carefully. We're going to make good decisions. We have good data. We're not going to rush into anything. Take some sensible measures, protect yourself, right? You can kind of get the the dynamics here. Well, and I um, think the person that did that the most, the most was DeSantis. Yeah, I'd say he got into that posture I didn't follow Florida super closely, but probably April, May of 2020, he was moving in that direction for sure. You would know better than I in terms of exactly when he started thinking carefully about moving away from the aggressive actions to a more incremental uh, approach to dealing with the pandemic. And I haven't followed every single state, but of course, not every single state raced forward like New York and California. And other states had reopenings on different timelines as well that were more aggressive, Florida definitely, Texas for sure. Um, so yeah, it wasn't as if there were no public officials by April or May starting to say, wait a second, we're getting better data. We survived this first crisis, if you wanna call it that. And now we need to take a more sober view about what we can and should be doing as a government going forward. Uh, and you don't have to agree with everything they did, but at least there was some effort to think more carefully about what I used to call how we live with the virus. Yeah. Right. It's just, you yeah. can't reorder your entire society around the virus. And well, yet we, we tried yeah. to do that repeatedly yeah. in California. Well, that's what I'm saying. When the, when the message changed from, uh, when was that shift? You know, either we're going to look at hospitalizations or two weeks to flatten the curve. There was a, there had to be a shift that went from measured public, you know, policy intervention to zero, zero tolerance and, and everybody needs to be safe. And at least in, I think it was always that way in California, but, you know, after that two, first two weeks, but there was definitely a, a shift. Oh, there definitely was. And I think, you know, we used words like defeat the virus mm -hmm. here in California, which makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Zero COVID makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, again, I think the historians will have a good look at this five to 10 years from now when the dust is settled and you can get some calmer reflection on the historical record. The shift definitely occurred. The reasoning behind it, you know, exists behind, you know, government firewalls and things like that. But ultimately, in my opinion, you know, it boils down to essentially power and a different view of what the government's role is than um, certainly than I have, but others as well in terms of what power you have and when you choose to exercise that power, the role of government in uh, making decisions for people as opposed to giving them information to make good decisions. 
um, you know, reordering the economy, uh, picking winners and losers in the stay-at-home order, because of course not every business was closed, not every person had to stay home. Uh, strip clubs, <laughs> you want to go to a strip club? Fine. Church? Hell no. Yeah, bars and schools, right, became the big, the big juxtaposition in the in the early, well, really for the first six to nine months of the the pandemic. Um, so those issues, you know, they come to the fore, uh, and you know, we'll see if there are other reasons that historians can uncover. But you know, the data were pretty clear, as I've said, by April that it had worked. If you listen to any of the epidemiologists, which I did, I was doing all kinds of research. I was listening to folks at Hopkins and other places, uh, quite uh, quite attuned to what they were saying. In fact, you know, they were predicting successive waves of, of diminishing severity, partly because of natural immunity occurring as a result of infection, plus the arrival of vaccines, sort of the net, just the way things were going to progress. Fatalities would become less and less of an issue, hospitalizations become less, less of an issue. And certainly that's exactly what's happened over, over the last three years. And so you get these follow the science pithy mantras. You could say, follow the data, follow the science. That's all I was trying to do and a lot of other folks as well. So if you looked at the actual data, you looked at what experts on virus behavior were telling us, we knew we had one or two storms to ride out. And then this was going to become more of a seasonal, smaller and smaller wave recede into the background virus. And that was known in 2020. <laughs> and we could have acted on that information sensibly uh, in 2020, but we didn't. I think what surprised me in doing the research is that this virus behaved no different than any other big and bigger virus, the Spanish flu, you know, um, the plague, all of these things, they didn't behave any differently. Like you said, you have these waves um, that, yeah. that peak and that go down and each subsequent one gets less destructive. And eventually in the past, it was before vaccinations, it was just herd immunity. Um, I think I was talking to you too about the article and this will be interesting maybe to shift to the psychology of it, but um, there was a, a guy that was talking about, he remembers being in college during, I think it was, it must've been the sixth, the, the pandemic of 60, the Korean, um, then there were two, right? One in the late fifties, one in the late sixties, yeah. right? Yeah. Two severe influenza yeah. outbreaks. Yeah. And he was in college, right? Obviously universities were a major target for closures during this pandemic. And he goes, yeah, we just kind of knew we're going to get sick and oh, well, <laughs> like it was just the, the level of tolerance, the level of resiliency, the level of like, all right, I'll get sick. I mean, the, the fear and the panic in people's eyes when they saw you without a mask, like I've literally seen people jump to the other side of the street in the middle of Santa Monica, where the roads are like, you know, right. the night part of Santa Monica, where the roads are just wide as can be. And just, I, I mean, the, the nonsensical 
trigger response to seeing someone without a mask outside on a walk. You know, this, so this whole psychology of fear, um, being fragile, being scared of everything. Like if you're scared of words, imagine what a virus is going to do. Yeah. It definitely illustrates that grit and resiliency in parts of our society are perhaps in shorter supply than, than we would like. I think from a policy and data perspective, what it tells me, and I think a lot of behavioral economics folks would agree with this assessment, is that many, many people are not very good at assessing risk. Mm. They don't understand risk. They don't understand risk management. And so they form these very strange <laughs> opinions about the risks they face in their daily lives uh, that are not sound in terms of any kind of risk analysis. And you know the the obvious examples are things like here in coastal California, you don't want to swim in the ocean because you're afraid of being attacked by a great white shark. Yet you might drive down the 110 freeway without your seatbelt on, right? And think that's low risk. That's insane, right? And then you know, so you know, tra traffic fatalities get discounted dramatically in our minds as a risk factor, but other things get grossly inflated based on any number of issues: the media, the perceived implications or results of encountering that risk, right? And so we reorder our lives in a way that doesn't really correspond to reality in a sense of what you actually face face in your daily life in terms of risks. And again, I think some of this dates stems to stems from the early reporting on COVID case fatality rate. Um, yeah, it was not great to be in the ICU and hooked up to a ventilator in the early days of COVID. There was, I'm not saying a death sentence, but if you ended up on a ventilator, we didn't understand the treatment very well at that point. It was not not a good prognosis for you. And that's scary stuff. Um, and so when you see really scary stuff, you over you begin to lose sight of the actual odds, right? Yeah. And I think that definitely happened and has still happened uh, to a certain extent. It's still happening to a certain extent in, in parts of the country. Um, now folks should be able to make their own risk management decisions, in my opinion. But we didn't allow that to happen for most of the pandemic either, right? To your point. So um, if folks want to make that decision, okay. But that's different than saying that everyone has to make the same decision, right? In terms of how, how much risk they want to accept uh, and how they want to live their lives. So um, yeah, interesting, interesting question. That Sociologists seems, are going to yeah. look at this. Yeah. Well, that seems to be the California way, though, and this is you know, this could go on for hours about Newsom's approach to policy is that it's it's blanket policy. Nobody else can assess their own risk and it goes well beyond COVID, as we know, it goes into environment. It goes into I just had to write a piece um, for the, you know, the the publication that I write for now and about um, EVs and that everybody has to have an EV by 2035. And it's, it's, there's two things for me about that is that one, like you said, 
you know, it's, it's mandating something that, that should be offered to people, right? I get it. California, 40% of electric car sales come from California. That's great. If y'all want to drive, I don't care. You know, that you have the choice to do that. And now you're going to mandate it. But the other thing is you're actually not giving people all the information to make that, that decision for themselves. You are covering up the supply chain of EVs, the costs of batteries, the, again, no cost benefit, no, what do we do with these batteries when they're done? No, how caustic they are. Uh, they're highly flammable when put together, right? Yeah. So it's hard to recycle them. Like everybody's like, oh, we can just make newer batteries out of the old batteries. Well, that's pretty toxic and dangerous, okay? Yeah. Um, there's no conversation about slave labor, all this talk for slavery in the United States, but no one seems to believe that it's still going on in other countries. It's like classic NIMBY, you know, not in my backyard. It's fine if this is happening, but I don't want to see it. So for yeah. so many reasons, like this is how he governs. And it's enraging to be in this state sometimes. Yeah, I mean, that gets back to political philosophies that we talked about earlier and you know, paternalism, the nanny state. And you know, again, back to behavioral economics, which I really like, there's this great book called Nudge, right? About sort of providing the public with information and framing it perhaps in a way that increases the odds of them making certain decisions, but doesn't force the decision on them. Mm -hmm. And it's a sort of middle ground between the nanny state, if you will, and libertarianism kind of run amok, right? But we don't do nudging. <laughs> uh, yeah, we well, just- or comp- or, or um, the point of politics in general, which is persuasion. Right. Persuade well, that's- Persuasion. And, yeah, and nudging is nudging. part of that as yeah. well. And like you said, presenting, presenting <laughs> all the data transparently in a way that allows the public to understand the decision-making process and the trade-offs that went into the decision that was made. Uh, and we also don't do a very good job. Nudging is one approach, uh, incentives is another, right? And you can mm-hmm. create carrots and you can create sticks to alter the market a little bit, but not overrun or override the market. And that's not a philosophy that's in, in use here in California either. And so we didn't, we didn't try any of these approaches during the pandemic. And, and that was one of my initial fundamental concerns that I expressed to the governor. It was simply that there was no analysis of alternatives. There were no alternatives identified, let alone analyzed to the stay at home right. order and, and no cost benefit analysis associated with any of those alternatives, let alone the stay at home order that was, uh, that he adopted. And that persisted all the way through the pandemic with the various policies and closures, whether it's schools, business, mask mandates, changes to restaurants, outdoor seating, all those things, right? There was no economic analysis. There was no consideration of long-term costs, mental health, substance abuse, food insecurity, actual health, physical health because of missed screenings, appointments, and things of that nature, all of those costs were ignored 
for the duration of the pandemic. Uh, in every and the policy thing is, decision. anytime anybody brought those things up, like the Great Barrington Declaration, which yep. you signed as a professional and I signed as a concerned citizen, but they just got, it was unbelievable misinformation, disinformation, the, you know, discrediting obvious, obviously accomplished experts, the real experts in their field, not the bureaucratic experts. Yeah, well, it became impossible, as you know, just to have an, a level-headed conversation about trade-offs and costs and benefits. And it's not disingenuous to say, I would prefer for the most vulnerable folks not to get infected, not to be hospitalized, and of course, not to die from COVID. That's true. It's not disingenuous to say that and also say, but I would also prefer our schools remain open and our public policy approaches, our public health approaches to be designed to be as light touch as possible for folks who are not highly vulnerable to this virus. Those are not mutually inconsistent positions. And you could right. then say, because I'm concerned about the long-term consequences of closures and things of that nature on mental health, physical health, substance abuse and the like. But it was just impossible may still be impossible in certain circles to have that kind of conversation and try to reach sensible, sensible positions on this virus or quite frankly, the next one. And there will be a next one at some point, of course, um, or something else. Or something else. Yeah. Like that's what I think is um, concerning is this, the way I think you mentioned it early, society was reordered permanently because of this and the willingness of people to go along with that and then they can do it again. Well, I mean, to me, it's already here. It's the, it's the environment, you know, that's the, they've already discussed like how clean the air was when everybody stayed at home and, <laughs> you know, that that should be a worthy goal to achieve no matter the costs, no matter the, you know, and we saw that, well, you see that and you're, you're knee deep in this with water policy and conservation here. Yeah, and there are other issues at play there too, because you know, on things like the environment, things like water, yes, there are emergency declarations, if you will, from time to time, but you know, quite frankly, these are relatively, I know the environmentalists would disagree with me on, on both counts, but these are relatively slow moving mm -hmm. public policy problems, right? We have, a, we have a cycle for water in California. We just went through a terrible drought. It's now over. There will be another drought in the not too distant future, of course. Uh, we're making progress on our air and climate goals, perhaps not as fast as some people would like but it's, we're moving forward. So why did I say this? Because a lot of the activity in these areas is legislative. It's legislative and then it produces regulatory action and occasionally it produces unilateral action by the, the governor. Um, but when you're in that legislative environment, um, we, in theory, in California, have an opportunity to influence the outcome, right? Uh, to make policy more sensible 
to have these kinds of cost benefit analyses become part of the fabric of policymaking in the state. Um, but by and large, I don't think that's happening very often. I'll just say it that way, right? Um, and so it's a lost opportunity for folks to kind of encourage slash force their elected officials to do the hard work rather than pick an outcome and then justify it, right? Mm -hmm. Do the hard work to get to the right outcome. Mm -hmm. Don't pick the soundbite outcome and then go into political speak to justify it. Yeah, it's reverse order. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I'm more of a realistic technocrat in that regard than uh, a political firebrand. And as you know, we have a lot of political firebrands here in California, and um, they're going to make their decision first and justify it second. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I'd be okay with it if there were results, if there were actual results, if, if, if you could show me what you've done has proved to be beneficial, right? If you can show me that your homeless policy has indeed taken people off the streets and made people safer. If you can show me that your environmental policy is actually doing, moving the needle drastically in the right direction. And that nope. never turns out to be the case. Yeah, performance measurement in a one party state can be hard to come by, right? We don't have a vibrant two party system in California. And so forcing either, you know, either party, but in this case, the Democrats to justify their decisions, measure their performance. Uh, there's just no political infrastructure in California designed to do that, right? There, there's just not a vibrant Republican party and there's certainly not enough seats in the, in the assembly of the Senate to, uh, to force that kind of discussion around well, that's the results. Okay. The, the ones that should be holding them accountable are the voters. And that to me is the greatest conundrum is that people are bitching about homeless problems and crime and all these things in the state, yet they don't correlate who they vote for with their outcomes, what they're seeing or the lack of outcome, right? The lack of action in these areas. Yeah, I think that's true. And we could get into the whole political philosophy and political party discussion, which is probably outside the bounds of, of this podcast. I agree with you that voters ultimately bear the responsibility. We're the ones who put these folks in office. I do think, though, that voters here in California don't believe they have a viable alternative in many cases to the Democrats. And so they're willing to overlook problems because they don't see any viable alternative. And so, again, I'm not a Republican. I'm not getting into Republican Party politics, whether there should be a third party in California, any of those issues. I'll just say that when you don't feel like there's a viable alternative who fits with several of your values, most people can't find an elected official they agree with on everything. Right. But they're looking for someone they agree with most of the time who seems reasonable 
I'll just take if, reasonable at this point. Right. I don't given their, say right. agree with that. I'll just take reasonable. Reasonable given their, their value set. Um, but if you don't see that alternative, you're willing to overlook the flaws in the status quo. And I don't think we have a lot of jurisdictions, right, where there are viable alternatives to the status quo. And so that just creates the conditions you're talking about, which is sort of a unilateral, just check the box on the ballot, return people to office. Maybe you hold your nose while you do it, but that's that's what we get. And, you know, super majority, not really accountable, no checks and balances. And as I said, during the pandemic, certainly no legislative oversight of the governor's use of his emergency powers. Uh, if anything, it was more cheerleading <laughs> the use of those powers than any kind of oversight whatsoever, um, which as a political philosophy, political science person really bothers me because it's democracy, Republican form of government. It's the legislature that is the supreme source of power, if you will, in the government system, and they need to exercise it and not cede it. Um, but that ship has sailed <laughs> for the pandemic anyway. Um, so, uh, taking me back to all my undergraduate courses in political philosophy and my life in DC here, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's when it boils down to it. It's, I keep saying it's that in human nature. What is your, what is your perception of human nature, of love? of freedom, of responsibility, of self-responsibility. Um, and somehow California really likes their golden handcuffs. My, my thing is, is where you see Californians voting blue heavily is in the cities, right? In the wealthy, in San Francisco, where people have the luxury to actually not be affected by the policies that are created. They have easy workarounds, right? They get to send their kids to private school. They get to live behind a gated community. So they they get to stand behind these things, but signal, well, the virtue signaling. I mean, it's true that there's a certain percentage of the population that can inoculate themselves against the consequences of their voting decisions. Uh, that is true. But I think to your point earlier, you know, if you look at school board elections, local supervisor elections, some of the state assembly uh, elections, you know, you have heavily Democratic districts returning Democrats to office over and over and over and over again. And yet school performance is down. Mm -hmm. Homelessness is up. The economy is down. Housing costs are too high. People are leaving, right? All these problems persist. And in California, there is only one party. Yeah. So you just continue to vote for the folks who are not solving these problems. That's definitely happening in California. I mean, do you think it'll, sh what, what will it take? Will it take, um, I mean, we have some sensible Republicans, I think, Kevin Faulkner was one of them. Um, 
I don't know many other, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the challenge in California is who is going to provide an alternate view that still corresponds to at least some of the values of the folks who are voting Democratic time and time and time again, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Faulkner had a good track record as the mayor of San Diego, uh, did not translate into uh, success in the recall election. Um, Riordan had a good, relatively good record as the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, you know, we had Schwarzenegger as governor briefly, <laughs> but these are these are sort of few and far between, and it's a challenge, uh, certainly at the state level, to do anything. I mean, just look at the elections for statewide office. Uh, to even get elected statewide as a non-Democrat is virtually impossible. Um, virtually impossible. So I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. Um, you should run. <laughs> something something i am an elected official i'm on my water district yeah, board of your... directors right so uh as Baby my steps. wife as my wife likes to joke i was elected to the only office i could possibly have been elected to in california so um yeah i don't know jennifer it's a it's a hard question and you know i i thought maybe the school closures during the pandemic might shift voting patterns a little bit because quite frankly, mothers who just, right, are just care so much for their children and are seeing them suffer during the pandemic might use that issue to change their, the mis, mishandling of education during the pandemic to change some of their voting patterns, but I don't see any evidence that that's really happening in California. I think it's happened perhaps in a few other states. Yeah. Virginia. But not, right. But not sure. here. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure. Um, you know, the media has not really adopted a check and balance approach on state or local officials here in California. Um, so we don't have a vibrant we don't have a vibrant media check. We don't have- And that's a, supposed to be their job, right? Is to, yeah. they're supposed to be the watchdogs yep. of government, yeah. And we don't have a vibrant Republican party. We have no third party that's emerged. Uh, we have a lot of independent voters in California. We do, an enormous number of independents, yeah. no party preference, who will vote split ticket, but lean Democrat most often, right? So. It's a hard, it's a hard nut to, to crack, I think, here in, in California. Um, and, you know, you and I could take a poll right now and try to figure out what public sentiment is on Newsom's handling of the pandemic. My mm -hmm. guess is if we took an actual representative sample across the entire state, it would be viewed favorably. Mm -hmm. Still, that's my guess. And, you know, to your point, back to the electorate and the political philosophy of those we elect. Mm -hmm. It's possible in California that folks prefer the heavy hand of government on certain issues. Um, well, I mean, you're allowed to have that point of view. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do realize the the that reality of that is I just happen to be living in a state where I'm a, in the minority, which I've flipped, as you know. So it wasn't always like that. And I always I flipped because I started to understand better. And maybe that's the maybe that's the task at hand is to educate people on political order, political philosophy, what happens when you go down this path that it's it's not a good outcome. Yeah, I think that's a possibility here in Santa Barbara. Uh, I've worked with some folks who have, we've all essentially come to the same conclusion, which is that what we're trying to achieve, which we think is achievable in certain circumstances, is just to essentially demand transparency mm -hmm. and accountability for the decisions that are made. In other words, they've got to be transparent. And you've got to be able to explain them and justify them. And then we'll measure your performance. So we can have perfectly sensible Democrats in office, and we do have a few. So work with them to basically say, all right, if this is the policy choice you're making, tell us why, explain it, and then we're going to measure performance. Mm -hmm. Does it actually work? Mm -hmm. We're not against tackling homelessness. Of course, we're not. We'd like to see it solved or improved. So tell us your actual plan, how you got there, why it's different than the last 20 years, and how we're going to measure performance. And let's see if it works. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to work to get folks like that right, mm -hmm. into office, because then at least you can have, quite frankly, that discussion I was talking about earlier that you almost can never have right now, which is just the level-headed Let's talk about the problem. Let's talk about the alternatives to solving it. Why'd you pick the one you're picking? What do you think the costs and benefits are going to be? How are we going to measure performance? Okay, I don't agree with you, but it was a reasonable selection. So let's move forward and see if it actually works. And if it doesn't, and if it doesn't, and a lot of things won't work, let's change course, right? And come up with a different alternative. Maybe one of the ones we discarded previously, because now we've got to get to that that alternative um but I don't that's know, what you we're talking about is accountability that's to me the most concerning and why i keep having the covid conversation yeah. is because it doesn't seem like anyone's being held to account for bad decisions and they keep peddling the lie i mean i just wrote a piece on fauci who um received some prize and he said something about I'm extremely humbled to be in the company of like, it was a, some humanitarian award, right? It, Bono yeah. or Bono was one, but you know, I'm extremely <laughs> humbled to be in the company of these great people. And I was like, okay, those are two words that should never be in the same sentence, Anthony Fauci and humble. You know, <laughs> uh, the biggest danger right now in all of this is a lack of trust in public institutions and a lack of trust of each other. Yeah, those are real. I mean, lack of humility is a real problem in the political class generally, as you know. <laughs> uh, but it's particularly true with folks who have to make decisions with less than perfect data, right? And so instead of saying, I don't have the data I need, the data are imperfect, I'm going to make a decision recognizing I could be wrong and I'll reverse it if I'm wrong. 
no public official ever utters that those set of words that I just uttered, right? It's here's my decision. I'm rock solid on it. It's the right thing to do. And, and I won't waver. Right. Yeah. And I won't waver. And you know, that's a huge problem. We talked about it with modeling, the modeling behind COVID and other kinds of models. There's a lot of hubris in the modeling community and not a lot of willingness to go back and look at assumptions, revisit performance, make us make adjustments. It's nope, here's my prediction. And then the media runs with it. And uh, if you had caveats and qualifiers, they were ignored. You may have ignored them yourself because you wanted the headline. Right. So lack of humility is definitely is definitely an issue. And then, yeah, government credibility. Maybe less so in California for the reasons we've been discussing, but in other places, I think is definitely taken a hit uh, as a result of decisions made during the during the pandemic, whether it's the modeling, as we've discussed, being so flawed and driving so many decisions. Uh, you know, we haven't talked about the vaccines and I'm fully vaccinated and I made that decision for myself for my own reasons, but the benefits of the vaccine were overstated to be clear, uh, particularly when it was viewed as potentially preventing transmission of the virus. Uh, and when it became clear that was not a benefit of the vaccine, we nonetheless persisted in our policy with the vaccine. Um, I think that's a problem. Uh, you and I have talked about this and it's not, this is one area the media has reported, but there's been no staying power on it. It's the hypocrisy of government officials, both in the US and abroad. Do as I say, not as I do. Rules for, going out. Rules for thee, not for me. Yep, <laughs> going out, having parties, going to restaurants, sending your kids to schools where they're allowed to go to school, <laughs> all those issues. Um, and we talk about the schools, so the schools closed and the bars open, right? Those kinds of issues, they do breed distrust in the public. Uh, and, you know, that is, that's a problem because eventually the boy who cries wolf is going to see the wolf. Yep. Yep. But, but if no one believes you at that point in time, yep. it, it's, it's a real problem. And so, you know, I've always been a big believer in both in my work in and around the government and my current work in government in being transparent, acknowledging when things have changed and reevaluating decisions when, when conditions have changed so that you have credibility in the public so that when you need to communicate something very important and you need the public to do something based on that information, they will actually believe you and do it. So, you know, here in, Cal in our water district, for example, uh, we had to adopt a water uh, stage two water shortage emergency because the state told us to. Mm -hmm. We had no such emergency in our water district because we're well managed and had adequate supplies and had planned for the drought uh, successfully. I know that's going to shock you based on our interactions. So we actually had a plan, we thought ahead, and it worked. Uh, so when it became clear that uh, our plan had succeeded, and we did not have a stage two emergency, but it was being forced on us. Uh, I went on the record, as did my fellow board members, at our meeting where we had to adopt the stage two emergency. And I said, the conditions for the stage two emergency don't exist in our district. 
we're only doing this because the state has told us to. And as soon as we can undo it, we will undo it. And did anybody care or give me a pat on the back? No. <laughs> but at the end of the day, can I say that we told the public exactly where we stood, what was really happening in our district, and what we're going to do when we had the authority to do it? Yes. And so about two and a half months ago, when it was clear that we had more water than we knew what to do with, and the state was still holding us to our emergency, we voted to rescind our stage two emergency the minute the state rescinded its order, right? So we went on the record and said, we're already done. We can't do it under state law unilaterally, but as soon as the state does it, this new resolution will go into effect and the emergency will be withdrawn. And I said, again, this is us being transparent because I want the public to know when we really have a water emergency, we really have a water emergency. And to trust you on it, right. Right, right. exactly. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so these, these issues, they will come back to bite the federal government and the state government, no question. There will be a point in time. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's a challenge. And, you know, of course the red blue divide on a whole bunch of these issues kind of ties into some of this, but it was certainly accentuated uh, by a lot of pandemic policies. And that's gonna make it harder to come together on issues that are important for the country or the state or your county uh, as well. And so, yeah, looking back, uh, I think it'd be fair to say this is a, obviously a very difficult time and I'm not, I've been in the, public record saying from the beginning that I thought COVID was serious and it required a serious government response. But in my opinion, we missed the opportunity, right, to have that serious government response that was driven by data, careful decision-making, alternatives being analyzed, costs and benefits being considered, and being incremental and responsive rather than one-size-fits-all, draconian emergency-style uh, decision making, at least in California, we missed that opportunity. And I think the costs, again, the historians will have to weigh in on this, but I'm pretty confident the costs of our policy choices will outweigh the benefits at the end of the day, if it's not already clear. But that's me. According to my analysis, it's already pretty clear. I mean, from what yeah. from the we have now, it's been pretty clear that the costs outweigh the benefits. And I think that you know, unfortunately, you served in government, but the people like you, the level-headed, common sense, you know, rational approach is either not rewarded or these people, they go into government and they get so disenchanted with it that you're like, why am I even here? It becomes so political that the people that should be holding office and should be a part of this policy-making, decision-making process like yourself just bow out and, and yeah. the local water board, which not, not, to, <laughs> except, not to diminish except, it, but you know. Except the one place where I could have an open intellectual <laughs> level-headed conversation with four other people from different backgrounds and get to good results, yeah. even if we don't always agree. Yeah, uh, yeah no, it's, it's sad, but it's, it's true. Um, there are probably other places where it's true, but it's definitely not common, right? Yeah. It's just not common, unfortunately. And that's just, politics have always been fairly brass knuckle 
the side of getting elected in our country. No one should romanticize elections in the early 20th century, right? They're not these genteel, polite affairs. Where, yeah, yeah. Where Anybody that has some some fantasy about like exactly gentleman-like behavior, this has yeah. been going on since the formation of the Constitution. It gets, uh, it's ugly. Yeah, Adams and Jefferson were not friends, right? No. So, uh, but that ended when the election was over. Correct. For the most part. Mm-hmm. We just haven't, at least for the last 30 years, had that mindset. It never ends. We're just always in that competitive, make the other side look bad fight. So you can't govern. I did hear a little different perspective from somebody that um, is in Rand Paul's office. And this, this makes me think that it's the media, a lot of it, calm, rational, bipartisan decision-making doesn't get attention. Nope. She, she was taught, she's like, we work with Cory Booker's office all the time, you know, but that's not getting the attention, right? It's the, it's the hot button topics that are highly contentious, gender, race, right? The cultural things yep. that get more attention than the actual good things that are being probably done. Yeah, I, certainly the, the hard work of legislating and reaching across the aisle, trying to find the position that two different sides can agree on. It's not glamorous. It takes a long time. The base never likes it. And it doesn't sell <laughs> newspapers or cable show cable shows. That's all true. I think it's all true, but I don't, I also don't think there's much appetite for even trying anymore mm-hmm. because it's just not how if your goal is to stay in office once elected running on a bipartisan legislative achievement record yeah all that does all that does is draw you a primary opponent in most of your <laughs> safe seats right you just get outflanked yeah to the right or left of you depending on what party you're in by someone who believes that those compromises were selling out right and yeah since primary elections are decided by a small fraction of the actual electorate who tends to be the most partisan, most disinterested in compromise. Right. It's very difficult if you want to continue to be reelected and most people do. <laughs> it's, it's really difficult to, to reach across the aisle um, more, uh, more than a handful of times and, and maintain your viability. Um, that's just a sad statement on how districts are drawn and our voting patterns, right? Apathetic centrist voters, <laughs> right? Those, those are all, these are all big picture problems that go well beyond COVID, but you've put your finger on a bunch of them, in my opinion. Um, and my efforts to jumpstart centrist political activity, both in Virginia and here in California have not been very successful. <laughs> so, yeah just being honest, right? It's frustrating, but it's true. Um, yeah, which is why I like that phrase, we, we have the government we deserve. I mean, I think if more of us would have these local conversations, and I had a, a podcast interview with Joshua Mitchell yesterday, who wrote this book called um, American Awakening. You know, we kind of, it, it gets more to the heart of the problem, that it's us, it's, it's our culture that has driven this type of 
divisiveness and we don't talk to each other. We don't want to communicate with our neighbors. He calls the, the liberal politics, I think, of competence. Like if the government weren't constantly doing things for us, we would have to rely on each other more. We would we would be forced to have these conversations and figure it out for ourselves on a local level, even a state level. But when you've got this big behemoth of a bureaucracy constantly coming in and arbitrating the slightest challenges, we're not relying on ourselves. We're not, we're not turning to our neighbors or even our, you know, statesmen or fellow citizens. Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion in academic and media circles around sort of the decline in civic engagement in the United States. And I think there's truth in that stemming from a whole bunch of sources, right? One being that we don't even teach civics for the most part in middle school or high school anymore. Mm -hmm. We just don't, uh, which is a huge mistake. Civic institutions are less subscribed to, if you will, than they have been historically, whether I'm going to run the gamut, rather, whether it's church to local organizations like rotaries mm -hmm. to attendance at school board meetings, maybe some of the pandemic issues aside. Um, I can tell you in my local government role, we see a handful of people that's always the same handful sporadically, right, at our at our meetings. So those mechanisms for having those conversations, for producing that community dialogue are not being well subscribed to anymore. And yeah, that's that's a challenge. And those are opportunities to sit down with people that you are in theory friendly with and have a friendly conversation about things that are affecting your lives. And maybe you agree and maybe you don't, maybe you persuade someone to your point of view, maybe they persuade you to their point of view. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But no, those, those opportunities seem to be fewer and farther between. And you and I have not talked about, and we only have a few minutes left this morning, we could talk forever, I'm sure on all these issues, but social media definitely is not helping this. It's going to say they're hitting the subscribe button here more than they are subscribing to their, like you said, I thought Rotary too. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's been talked about since the, I think the fifties, when did, when was Bowling Alone written? And then yeah. um, Ben Sass wrote them and it, it's, yeah. it, it's, listen, it's a, it's been a decline since the fifties. Yeah. Um, so the, the sort of fabric of civil society is not nearly as strong as it used to be. And I know people always, you know, I sound old saying this, you always glorify the past. There are plenty of problems in the past. Yeah. I'm not glorifying the past, but there were institutions and mechanisms that bound us closer together 30 to 50 years ago than there are today. Congress functioned a lot better back then. There were a lot of ways for Democrats and Republicans to work together. They played softball together. They played baseball together. There were things that brought yep. them together to allow them to govern those those mechanisms. Yeah, they just don't. They don't seem to be the glue. At least they're not a strong glue. And social media has just exacerbated this. Um, not only because you can just subscribe to whatever information flow you want and ignore the rest, but when you choose to comment, you can do it in all caps with exclamation points and say things that you would never say to a person's face. And it's and people delight in their rejection of facts and history or ignorance of facts and history, which is just for the lawyer and me, it just it's really bothersome to say the least, right? You want a reasoned, well-informed decision-making process. And we seem to celebrate the opposite. 
so much of the time, which, yeah, well, as you said, gets us the government we deserve. Um, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a challenge. And it's why I appreciate it. I mean, now having written an article a day for the past two weeks, um, <laughs> now I, I understand why Joe Rogan says I don't read the comments. I just like, yeah, wow, no. oh, I have never, and from both sides, by the way, which means I must be doing something right. So it's coming from both sides and it's, it's cruel. It's mean at best. <laughs> um, some of it. And, and oh, yeah. on the other hand, I get some really lovely, you know, the, what's interesting is the ones directly on the pieces, the comments on the MSN site or on the 1945 site, those are typically the angry mean ones. And then when people have something nice to say, they typically e actually email, right. they go yep. to, they, they take the time to email me and write a nice thoughtful note. So I, I see the difference in engagement. Yeah. My experience was exactly the same uh, when I was writing on, on COVID and yeah, you just have to tune out the comments, um, the positive information came in the thoughtful, whether it was positive or not, the thoughtful information. That's what I said. I'm in. always open to, by the way, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, but right. please send a thoughtful, let's have a conversation. Yep. Tended to go to the publisher and then come to me via email. Yeah, ultimately that's not why I stopped writing. I stopped writing because it was clear to me there was no public official audience for anything that I was saying mm -hmm. that nothing I said was making any difference in the policy choices uh, at Sacramento at Santa Barbara County and to me that just became too frustrating <laughs> to continue with I can handle the negative comments but yeah. the inaction was the thing that I threw my hands and decided this is this is pointless well, I'm glad you did. It gave me a lot, as you saw in my paper, a lot of footnotes, a lot of good information, you know, a lot of great conversations just between the two of us about these kinds of things. And that's, that's what needs to happen. So. No, I appreciate that very much. And yeah, I did get, I mean, folks did read the articles. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, I have the all time most read article in the history of, of the Newshawk publication in part because it was picked up by a national outlet, but I think it was read 400,000 times or something, right? Um, but still, and that's that's gratifying, but I wasn't doing it to be gratified. I was doing it to try to make a difference, right? And I just was, was not able at the time, but maybe through your work, work of others, the historians who are gonna look at these issues, yep. Yep. the Stanford faculty who cannot be very happy with how they were addressed during the pandemic. Yep. Uh, hopefully there'll be uh, a light shined on a lot of this and some of what I wrote and said during the early days of the pandemic is going to be part of that record and, and provide some of the insights uh, that will be used right by, by the official record keepers down the road, the historical record keepers to accurately assess right what was done and whether it made sense and what its costs and benefits were, all the things that you and I have been discussing. So maybe 10 or 15 years from now, you and I will do a second podcast and we'll be talking about <laughs> all of the... Well, of the I don't think it'll even be 10 years. I'm sure I'll, I'll be talking to you about the next disaster in which they refuse to look at data. So <laughs> in the meantime... Yeah, sadly, that's undoubtedly going to happen. Yeah, so no. it might be next week or next month. <laughs>
whatever it is. Whatever it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much uh, for your time. Well, thank you, Jennifer. You promised this was just gonna be a fun conversation. That of course is exactly what it was. As Brian has continually said, COVID is the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to flawed data analysis and the harmful policies that result from it. Let's hope it doesn't continue to gift us with the BS of 2020 to 2022 in places like California. After listening to this podcast, you should be all the wiser when you see numbers flashing on a screen like sports scores. I've got some great interviews lined up for fall, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss them. If you enjoyed this conversation and learned something, please take a moment to give it a rating and if you're so inclined, a kind review. Even better, share it with a friend or someone you think might learn something from this or any of the other conversations. It means a lot to me and more importantly, I hope it will help people understand our world in a more logical and cohesive way. Until next time, stay connected.